This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, sign up at patreon.com slash left or visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the ins, outs, highs, and lows of two of the most talked-about proposals for new social benefit programs, the universal basic income idea and the guaranteed job program. Today, we'll hear arguments for and against both of them, with clips from Upstream, Jacobin Radio, The Other Washington, The Next System Project, The Weeds from Vox, and Left Out from Democracy at Work. So initially, the idea was that there's more and more interest within the tech community for basic income as a policy. And that's, you know, because there is an increased um, concern that current technological developments might lead to um, a very bleak future for jobs and that we should start worrying about what we are going to do when robots are taking over. The age of robots has been anticipated since the beginning of the last century. Are the droids taking our jobs? The list of companies planning to replace human jobs with machines is growing. 47% of jobs in America are at or will be at risk of automation over the next two decades. This is the single biggest job category in America. That's correct. And it could go away within the next two decades. That's, That's the fear. If you've already heard about Universal Basic Income, or UBI, it was likely in this context, as a way to respond to job loss due to increasing automation. This is where most of the interest in UBI from Silicon Valley, where Stanford is based, comes from. Tech leaders like Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk, for example, have come out in favor of basic income because they claim to see it as the most sensible way of avoiding inevitable mass unemployment. Turns out this perspective is just one part of the story. Here's Juliana again. The kind of automation-driven interest in basic income is really the dominant one right here, right now. And so the idea of the course was to bring computer scientists, mechanical engineers, people getting interested in basic income uh, because they are kind of realizing the social responsibility they have, to bring them to see that the basic income debate can't be reduced to the automation debate and that there are, you know, many, many different arguments for basic income coming from a variety of different perspectives. And in fairness, I mean, I lived in, in Europe for a long time for most of my life, which is really recently here in the US. And I actually been writing on basic income, reading on basic income and automation was like a very, very small part of the puzzle. So the idea of the class was to show that, you know, there is an interesting discussion on uh, the freedom-based argument for basic income, right? So some libertarians, some neoliberals have argued that basic income is the instrument of freedom. It will free people to do whatever they might want to do with their time. And so there is a debate within kind of more liberal-leaning uh, theories of justice. And then we do kind of a week on the egalitarian arguments for basic income and also the egalitarian concern that, you know, basic income might not be enough and basic income might not in itself be sufficient to reduce inequalities. And so it might even be, a, in some kind of cynical critiques, it might even be a Trojan horse of neoliberalism. By a Trojan horse of neoliberalism, Juliana is referring to the questionable intentions behind the push for a basic income that comes from the right of the political spectrum, 
predominantly from neoliberals and libertarians. The idea behind these versions of a basic income is that we should abolish public services entirely and simply give people the cash instead so that they can purchase all their services on the market. Things like welfare programs, public housing, health care, and in some extreme cases, even public education spending would be cut entirely and replaced by a basic income. On the other hand, a progressive or egalitarian UBI would likely replace some services because things like unemployment benefits or food stamps may become redundant, but most public services would still remain intact. A progressive version would also be high enough to ensure that the policy would create a truly free labor market where workers could freely choose the work they want to do or even whether or not to engage in paid work at all. If the income level was not high enough to ensure this freedom, UBI might actually serve as a subsidy for employers who could get away with paying lower wages by relying on the basic income to make up the difference. As you can see, the left-wing and right-wing versions of basic income are quite different and would have radically different effects on society. Here's Juliana again with the rest of the course. We also have a week where we discussed kind of whether basic income can help uh, foster a more gender-just society. Uh, we have a week on um, racial justice and basic income. Black Lives Matter has endorsed basic income as part of their manifesto. And that's, I think, uh, something that doesn't really get discussed very much. But there are very, very strong reasons to believe that basic income will benefit those who are least well off in this society. And so it might have an important impact on racial justice. And so we do almost seven weeks of that. And then we arrive at automation. And so they see that automation is actually, it's an important part of the puzzle that needs to be taken seriously and needs to be studied, but it's definitely not the entire debate. And that's really important to separate it out simply because we might want to say, well, look, we still need to resist some technological changes anyway and fight for basic income. It's not that we have to accept those changes and then support basic income. We might want to accept those changes and go for basic income, but it's not necessary. They don't necessarily work together. And I think that message is very important. Is the uh, the agitation for this coming from the the support? From our perspective, basic income is a is a is a policy that, in, in some ways, you could almost say is all things to all people. So you have very right wing uh, advocates of, of, of basic income uh, pushing for a very neoliberal version, and then you have uh, a sort of a left liberal uh, lobby that is pushing for a version of basic income that they believe, uh, we disagree, but they believe could be implemented in such a way as to be uh, redistributive and uh, to reduce poverty and levels of inequality, etc. But there's a very large academic and agency-based, I would say, largely uh, lobby for basic income on an international scale. Yeah, well, that's one of the interesting things about the, the idea is the, uh, the diverse <laughs> quality of its support. You have Silicon Valley types supporting it, and also some people on the far left, uh, you know, both of whom seem to embrace an idea that 
employment is traditionally conceived as disappearing, and this is a way to uh, keep people alive. And uh, the support across the political spectrum is said to be a selling point. Um, you, however, are not a fan. Uh, what is your critique of it? Perhaps let's look at the, at the Ontario model that's now being experimented with, because it, it, it's kind of a checklist of how a system that is called basic income could be used to advance um, what we might call the neoliberal agenda. So what is being provided is an income that is higher than people receive presently on social assistance in Ontario, but it's still a sub-poverty income. So it's not going to be an income that would enable people to withdraw from the labour market if they chose to or uh, survive the, the robot future. It's a, it's a low payment. It's going to be provided primarily to people who are waged but, uh, but, but still living on, on very low income. So it's designed primarily as a, a wage top-up, which is another way of saying a subsidy to low-paying employers. That sounds somewhat like our earned income tax credit. Yes, but of course, if this were introduced on a, on a, on a, a jurisdictional scale, we're talking about an enormous intensification of the process of topping up uh, people's wages out of the out of the tax revenues the other element of of the right wing basic income that somebody like for example the the political scientist charles murray puts forward is the notion that basic income must uh, not augment existing systems of social provision uh, but but replace them so uh, that you become a, a shopper with your basic payment shopping for things that once were provided by the state but have now been privatised. And the Ontario pilot contains some of the elements of that, so that people that go on the pilot uh, who are presently on social assistance will lose support for things like hearing aids, eyeglasses, mobility devices, medical transportation, those, those kinds of things. So already with this relatively generous small-scale showpiece operation, uh, they're beginning to move in, in, in that very in that very direction, using basic income to eliminate and privatise uh, existing systems of social provision. Now, I think there's a certain strand of the libertarian left that finds that somewhat appealing, that they see the welfare bureaucracy as intrusive and patronizing, and poor people shouldn't have conditions uh, placed upon uh, their assistance. Make, they can make those choices themselves. So the, the welfare state is seen as intrusive and, and heavy-handed. Uh, what do you say to that kind of uh, that argument? Well, of course, there's, no, there's absolutely no doubt that existing systems of income support are, are rooted in the sort of the, the tradition of the English poor laws. And they are indeed intrusive and they are indeed sub-poverty and, in, and inadequate. And uh, we, we, as an organization, challenge that on an ongoing basis and demand an end to bureaucratic intrusion and, and we fight for adequate income. Uh, but we don't think that basic income, as it is likely to emerge in this present political neoliberal context, is going to be what the left libertarians want it to be. It's going to be designed by the architects of the neoliberal agenda. It's going to suit the interests of the Silicon Valley crowd. It's not going to be based on people's wishes. It's going to be based on an existing political reality.
So I have a serious problem with uh, guaranteed basic income. And uh, part of that has to do with the fact that libertarians love GBI. Yeah, isn't that weird? Well, I can tell you what it is. It's uh, I, I think that ultimately the end game for a lot of libertarians who support GBI is that they think that if they were to pass a guaranteed basic income, that they could cut everything else in the social safety net. They can right. cut, um, you well, know. Well, this is one of the advantages of basic income in that our current social safety net is incredibly inefficient. And it's a lot of hard work being poor because you have to go and apply and maintain eligibility for all these different programs. Um, you, you'll be getting um, Medicaid and food stamps, SNAP, uh, housing assistance, home heating assistance. Right. Uh, around here, you can get uh, discount on your transit passes. There, there's all these things, and, and it's a very complicated program set of programs. Um, they don't all work together, and there's a lot of inefficiency in providing all these things individually. Whereas we could eliminate all of that, save all the money of administrating the entire social safety net, and replace it with a single monthly check. Yeah. But, but <laughs> like most libertarian ideas, it doesn't take actual human nature into account. And there are going to be people who are, um, you know, addicted to drugs or, you know, uh, right. Who's going to spend, they're going to drink their check and then what? And then what? And then do you just let them die in the street? Well, you know? right. And so, and the other thing is, of course, is that, and I think you agree with me and you were going there. The, the these libertarians aren't necessarily uh, honest negotiating partners. That one of the advantages to this incredibly Byzantine and inefficient social safety net we have is that uh, it, as complicated as it is to administer, it's just as complicated to dismantle because you have multiple constituencies uh, who are defending it. Uh, when you look at SNAP, you've got food stamps. Well, that's administered by the USDA and it is in a sense largely a subsidy to, um, uh, the, the agribusiness, the, the, the food companies, uh, food manufacturers as, and, uh, retailers as it is to the, uh, people who are receiving the food stamps. When you look at housing assistance, much of it these days is in Section 8 vouchers. These are checks that go to landlords, essentially. That, so now, yeah, you can take these low-income families into your rental units and the government is writing you a check and it's guaranteed you're going to get that regardless of whether they can pay, pay the rent. The government's paying the rent. Uh, all across the board, uh, every time we've seen this, when they've tried, when the Bush administra administration went after Social Security, you have the AARP uh, defending Social Security. When uh, recently, when they went after Obamacare, well, in fact, the healthcare industry was defending Obamacare. Once you build these things, it's very hard to take them down. With UBI, with a basic income, you now have one check that you get each month and you know the best way to eliminate the social safety net just don't index it and over time inflation will eat it away until it's nothing just like the minimum wage yeah and once it's gone it's gone right and that changes expectations in a pretty dangerous way uh in that there's just no way to there's no way to catch people who have fallen and people are always going to fall. And that's something that a lot of libertarians don't or won't or don't choose to take into account when they're when they're promoting these ideas.
I'm speaking with John Clark of the Ontario Campaign Against Poverty. Now, the OECD a while back did uh, the math on uh, basic income, comparing how much it would cost versus the existing welfare state. And I think it was two or three European countries they looked at. And the message is, you know, regardless of what you think of their numbers precisely, uh, the message is, which I think is kind of hard to argue with, to have a basic income at a civilized level would be very, very, very expensive. And uh, really the only way to make it affordable would be to have it be very low and eliminate all the other uh, welfare programs. I mean, is there anything wrong with that math? No, I think the OECD report was probably uh, quite correct. The, uh, the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives here has done a, has done a similar kind of a, a breakdown of things and actually suggests very interestingly that for about half the cost of providing a basic income that would only have, have a goal lifting people out of poverty who are in poverty, not really a universal program, but for about half the cost of that, you could introduce $15 billion worth of major changes that would that would sweepingly provide social housing, that would uh, provide dental care, that would provide pharma care, universal child care. So, yes, a, a, a truly adequate basic income would be enormously expensive. The OECD has said it, the Canadian study I, I, I mentioned, uh, the Scottish government has done a similar study. Uh, those, they all confirm that perspective. Now let's talk a bit about some philosophical issues. First, the idea of work itself. There's a lot of uh, a lot of support for the universal basic income on the left comes from people who really think work is a terrible thing and humans should be liberated from work as much as possible. I don't really understand who would perform this, the labor that would keep society going, but the, you know there, there's an argument in this anti-work crowd. Do, do you think there is something valuable in work in itself that uh, we should uh, try to develop and encourage? Or should we just take this anti-work attitude uh, that is, is popular with you know, Kathy Weeks and, and folks like that? As a society, we certainly need a, a labor process. We certainly need to be productive. We live presently under an exploitive system in which, the, uh, in, which, uh, in which a small class of people profit from the labor of other people. And I'm certainly not reconciled to, uh, to that position. But that's the whole point about this notion of ending the tyranny of the of the, of the labor markets as, as one progressive basic income advocate has put it, it it's a kind of a, a delusional post-capitalist capitalism in which uh, people can decide whether or not they want to enter the labor market and if they do they do so on their own terms and that's not the basis for this system you know when they first created capitalism they created it by driving the peasants off the land because if the peasants had their own plot of land, they wouldn't need to work for capitalists. Well, the basic income is like imagining you could give the land back to the peasants and still have capitalism, and you, you, you really can't. Uh, I, I'm not looking out for the welfare of the capitalist system. I'm just saying there isn't a, there isn't a, uh, a social policy way to make it nice. And uh, another philosophical angle, uh, you can trace a lot of the uh, the thinking behind the basic income to Milton Friedman's negative income tax proposal for the 1960s. And for Friedman, it was a way of providing money without a government welfare structure uh, and also preserving the market system, the freedom of choice and such. It sounds like you know some of the, the benefits you're describing try to take away the market, to decommodify the, the basics of life. So it seems like a universal basic income, in a sense, is accepting the logic of the market as our instrument of distribution. 
and uh, it gives up any challenge uh, to the notion of, of market dominance. Uh, it just seems to like, make everything a matter of, of, of uh, how we spend our money rather than um, uh, trying to uh, think of a post-monetary way of organizing a society. Yeah, I, I, think you've, I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head with that observation. I think that's completely correct, and, and that's why I think that, that as a radical proposal, basic income, intentionally or not, is, is a fraud. Because it does reconcile itself to uh, to the marketplace. Indeed, it, it 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 looks to massively extend that commodification process by turning everybody into a, a shopper with their basic income in the uh, in, in the neoliberal marketplace. And and that's not the direction we want to go in. We want to go in the exact opposite direction. Oh, yeah. So talk some more about the direction you think would be preferable. Short of a total social revolution, I mean, what, what would be a, a, a good way to reduce poverty and compress uh, inequality? Measured up against the kind of notion that it is going to be possible to get the state to provide us with an unlimited strike fund in the form of a basic income uh, so that you can work or not work, you can do what you want with your life. If you believe that's possible, I, I can't possibly provide... Uh, a vision or a dream that measures up to the beauty of that vision, except that it's just not going to happen. We are, after 40 years of neoliberalism, fighting a largely defensive struggle. And uh, if we're going to go on the offensive, we've got to fight for things that really count for something and, and that are attainable. We've got to fight for reduced hours of work at no loss of pay. We've got to fight for free and accessible and expanded public services. The existing income support systems do have to be rid of their moral policing and bureaucratic intrusion, and, and we have to fight for income ad adequacy. Uh, we have to struggle for these things, and I, I'll be the first to say that I think that the society we live in, where a handful of billionaires have more wealth than everybody else, is not a society that can be rooted in social justice. We are going to have to fight for an egalitarian and very different society. People who, on the left who advocate the basic income, do you think they've just uh, kind of given up? Um, they've lost uh, the ambition for that, that kind of transformative consciousness you talked about? I think that's very much the problem. I think we've had 40 years or more of neoliberal attack. Our unions are weaker than they used to be. Our social movements don't have a great critical mass. Many political parties that once advanced uh, at least partially progressive perspectives have, have accepted the austerity consensus. We've suffered some real defeats. And I think what emerges is this sort of hope that there's just a way to make it all right. There's this, there's this, there's this basic income solution that will put things back in place. And, uh, it, it, it's, it's beautiful on paper, but it's not, it doesn't correspond to reality. So yes, I think basic income is really in the end, as it, it to the extent that it's embraced by the left, is it, it, it does reflect that kind of a, a demoralized and disorientated view of If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. And, and you know what company I'm talking about. It's basically the one company online. Uh, you know, you probably shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases or you have your standard selection of home goods delivered regularly. 
In any case, you might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to. It'd be great if we could all avoid them somehow, but you know, it's like climate change. What we really need is regulation, not just personal choices. So until we can get some anti-monopoly trust-busting legislation passed, a lot of us are going to continue to make the not completely irrational choice of shopping there. So whether you feel your conscience needs soothing or not, you can support the production of this show by using our affiliate link and redirecting some of those purchasing dollars to us. Your shopping experience is identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. So to get the link, go to bestoftheleft.com and use our banner to click through to either the US, Canada, or UK stores and bookmark the page so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. I'm aware that The Rules has recently launched a campaign to reframe UBI in a way that would better enable it to lead to systems change. So as of now, you don't see UBI as a path towards systems change? No, by itself, it's 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 not because it doesn't challenge any of the fundamentals of capitalism. It doesn't challenge the growth imperative. Uh, it doesn't challenge the concepts of private property. It doesn't redistribute power in any way. It, it, it adheres strictly to the principle of capital generation as the prime directive of the system. It doesn't doesn't question value at all. So for all those reasons, on its own, it's not inherently post-capitalist. It has the potential to move us towards post-capitalism. But in order to do that, it has to not operate in the welfare frame. It has to not be seen as a form of charity. Um, It has to question concepts of power. It has to question work. It has to get into the fundamentals of, of the system. We have to somehow cohere around the idea that we're talking about system change. We're not talking about change to bits of the system. We're talking about system change. We have to be talking about system change. Um, Are you promoting a logic that is genuinely transformation of the the, the level of the system? Or are you promoting a policy idea that will soften soften the existing system slightly? We think time has passed where you can do the, the latter. Now we've got to be focusing on the system. So what are the problems that you see with putting UBI in a welfare frame and what might be a better way to talk about it? There are some really interesting parallels between the UBI as a concept and development, actually, as a concept and poverty alleviation. When I was at Oxfam and we did a lot of work looking at the overall development narrative, how, how the world talks about global poverty and development, what we found was it's a conversation that's mired in the charity frame which essentially says, you know, the way to solve problems is for to give a little bit of money from rich people to poor people. But we found that charity is a very, very small concept in many respects. Because it is about purely transfers of wealth, it very rarely allows space for conversations around the systems. And that means that it's actually, there's a very, very powerful tension between the idea of justice and the idea of charity. And that same tension exists in the UBI conversation, although what we'd say there is the tension is created by the predominance of the welfare frame, which is very much related to charity. It's how do you take care of the poorest people in society? How do they make sure they have just enough to survive? Um, just enough because obviously where the Protestant work ethic kicks in at that point and you say people must work for their living and you, you know benefits can never, charity can never be a preferable option to working. So, but this is predominantly a framing challenge. This is not a challenge 
actually of the basic idea of providing everybody with the wherewithal to live a healthy life. Because that's what UBI is, really, the wherewithal to live a healthy life. So we think the UBI should be a conversation about freedom, about liberation. It should not be a conversation about charity. Uh, and they're two very, very different things. So we know that tension exists right now. And as long as people talk about it in the welfare frame, you are going to reduce the idea to its most mechanical, lowest point almost. If you can stimulate, if you can get it talked about in the freedom frame, all the energy in the frame pushes it bigger and pushes it upwards. So that's the tension we have to figure out. And we don't know how to figure it out yet because you're talking here about very deep logics that exist in our societies. It's, these are very, very difficult things to, to get over. And so we have to engage at this level of the frames and the language if we want to really engage the root causes of the issues that we care about. Given trends in automation, there are people that suggest that, in fact, we shouldn't be trying to expand the work that's being done, and we should be trying to reduce it and indeed separate work from income. And the, these are the p folks that are arguing for universal basic income, some of them anyway. Um, others have different motivations for universal basic income. What is your sense of the debate between um, what seems to be kind of a debate going on between um, the JG advocates and UBI advocates um, and, and do you think we're running out of work to do? And can a UBI achieve the same goals that a job guarantee can as you've laid them out? Well, I mean, that's really the crux of the matter. Have we run out of things to do? In my opinion, absolutely not. I mean, if anything, you know, our communities need more. We need more. We, uh, we need stuff done. Uh, we need cleaner water. We need cleaner parks. Um, uh, better public service. I mean, not only that we we have not run out of things to do, but I also don't fully buy the argument that automation is completely going to wipe out all work. I think that automation, yes, will create major disruptions and wipe out some work, but it's also going to create a lot of other work that we haven't conceived of yet. There will be other work as pertains to technology. But the problem of unemployment will always be there. There will always be people who would like to work. And so, you know, I've started this talking to uh, UBI people, you know, 20 years ago, precisely because we have very similar diagnosis of the problems of the labor market. Labor market has become precarious, punitive, um, and people don't seem to thrive there. It's just that um, some basic income advocates wish to sever that link between work and employment. And... Uh, my priority is just to make work decent, dignified, and to strengthen the nature of work. It's not my job to tell somebody you shouldn't want work. You're much better off if I just give you income uh, and, you know, go and self-determine. You know, my job is to recognize that somebody wants work and to, to design policy that will provide that opportunity. So I think that we have very common goals, but I, I believe that how we get there, there's a disagreement on how we get there. We'd like um, 
in some ways our policy is to be transformative, to be able to create better, better life for everybody. And I think that the UBI can be a bit of a false promise because if people get income, even if it's living income, it's certainly going to help some people. But if we operate within these, this power structure, within these property relations, within the current context, if tomorrow we put in place basic income, I believe that it's not going to have sort of the, the disruptive and transformative effect than if you strengthen the power of labor. People might be able to opt out of terrible jobs, and maybe they should, but will they be able to self-determine? Will you be able to buy yourself health insurance? Will you be able to send your kid to a very expensive college? These things um, cannot be done just by basic income. So basic income is probably an add-on to some other broader progressive agenda. And I'm providing that other alternative. How can we strengthen the progressive agenda? And can we employ the power of people to achieve it? So in some sense, I like to say that our the bridge between us is participation income, that we will provide decent income, but we will make it in a way that actually brings in people into um, this sphere, public sphere, where that allows people to self-determine, to figure out what they can do for themselves and their communities through the job guarantee and do it in a um, democratic uh, decision, through a democratic decision-making process. And in a sense, then the line is blurred. Uh, but the people who believe that absolutely there should not be any requirement uh, for work, even to participate, uh, have a very different vision of, of what our future must look like. Uh, and I, and you know, I'm sympathetic, but I think at this point, our primary, you know, primary problems need addressing. We need people to do them, and you know, we need to employ that power. One thing I want to go back to, because this is something I've been thinking about getting you know, ready for this conversation, is this idea that comes up about this like sense of identity and value from work. And this is something I was reading Bryce Covert's um, Case for a Job Guarantee in the New Republic, where she writes that Americans overwhelmingly want to work. Most people say that they get a sense of identity from their job, which links to a Gallup poll on this. And I actually found the numbers kind of a, a letdown from how they were framed. So this is a Gallup poll. So it finds the top line is that 55% of workers get a sense of identity from their job. But when you break that down a little bit, it's really a lot of college graduates who are getting a sense of identity from their job. Um, 70% of college graduates say they have a sense of identity versus 29% who say that's just what you do. When you look at people who didn't graduate college, you know, it, the majority flips. 45% say they get a sense of identity. 51 say it's just what you do. Or if you look at a kind of low income um, worker, you see the same kind of split. 43% identity, 52%. It's just what you do. And this is one of the things that I'm a little kind of skeptical, even thinking about before we get to the details of like, how would a policy like this work is whether this is this notion that a job is something that's going to give people a sense of identity and dignity is is actually true of the type of people who would be participating in a jobs guarantee 
program and like what what we expect of those people because I think there are a lot of jobs and like even our jobs as reporter which I think we'd all probably like fit in the sense of identity like we identify as journalists who you know write things on our computer on the internet but like there's some parts where it's like this is just what I do when I have to do like certain trainings at Vox Media or there's like boring paperwork or stories I don't really feel like Doing expenses. Doing expenses is a good example. But there's some, you know, like there's entire movies like Office Space that are just about the fact like aren't jobs terrible and unproductive. And I I don't know. I just question the underpinning of this whole push that the type of jobs that would be created are the ones that would kind of create this sense of identity and purpose and whether we're asking kind of too much of uh, of what a workplace is going to do for for people in this situation. Yeah, I think the motivating research there is that there's a lot of sort of research on subjective well-being and and even just sort of like medical conditions that suggests that unemployment is one of the very, very worst things that could happen to you. That the people who go through a spell of unemployment report significantly worse well-being for for years afterwards. Long-term unemployment is, is really terrible for you. Suicide rates, early mortality goes up. It's It's a significant social cost. I think the issue is that that's all evidence we have from a world in which work is not universal and is stigmatized. Wait, well, and this is where I actually think that the program design details matter a great deal. And you, I think you can't separate like the conceptual issue that Sarah put on the table with the program design questions. And I think that the, the people from these like lefty organizations are actually really getting this wrong, right? That to the extent that jobs are a source of meaning in people's lives, which I think is clearly they are for some people, but not for other people. If the way your job guarantee works is that a person who doesn't have a job can go to the job guarantee office and they are then assigned some kind of semi-meaningless task in the like job guarantee department and you have like a little name tag that's like – you know, like Illinois Department of Guaranteed Jobs, and you're doing something like you're cleaning city parks or, you know, something that's useful, but that like society can can do without. That's clearly going to be in the category of the kind of job that doesn't give people the like sense of meaning and identity because it's going to be siloed off from all the other kinds of work, right? I mean, it's going to be the equivalent, the jobs equivalent of having a snap card, right? Which, I mean, people people like that they get nutrition assistance benefits um, and people who uh, would appreciate the money that would come with a jobs guarantee job. But you would be still marked out as like the person on the jobs guarantee and the jobs would have to be relatively basic, relatively low skill kind of work. This show runs on recurring donations from listeners just like you. And to be honest, between recent fundraising for Climate Ride and then doing the event and, of course, recovering from it, I have really been falling down on the job of thanking members for their support. So to get back in the groove, I want to thank Rainy B., 
Matthew M., and David P. for all going above and beyond to support the show and keep it going strong. For those who haven't signed up yet, remember that members get access to a members-only podcast feed that includes ad-free versions of every episode, plus two episodes of members-only bonus content each month. Uh, Plus, uh, just a reminder that it is absolutely no exaggeration to say that we really depend on new and existing members to run this show. You know, there's always some amount of cancellations due to financial hardship or other reasons, so even if it seems like we must be doing okay, we still really need every every new member we can muster, so it's always a good time to sign up. Memberships start at 6 bucks, but whether you can only chip in $1 a month, 10 20 or more to support the show, we really appreciate anything you can give, so please think about signing up. You can find us at patreon.com slash bestoftheleft. That link, of course, is in the show notes right on your device, or you can visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com to get started. Thanks, as always, for your support. What is your sort of response to the objections around crowding out the private sector and the issue of potentially inflation? Yeah, so I did read uh, Greg Ibb's piece in the Wall Street Journal, and I actually responded to him. We had a little bit of an exchange uh, there on Mm. Twitter. So, you know, this idea that if you come in with an offer that um, exceeds the current offer that's available to some workers in positions elsewhere in the economy, let's say in the private sector somewhere, and you come in and you say, you know, we're going to do a federal job guarantee program, and Mm. the starting wage is 15 bucks an hour, and we're going to include benefits. And the concern for some people is, whoa, that is so much better than what millions of people in the private sector are getting today. So they envision a scenario where people will just flee their jobs and their employers will just watch them watch them leave and they will come into the public service employment program and they'll work for a higher wage and, and better benefits. So, you know, Greg in his piece says he views this as a threat to private sector employment because this is what he thinks would naturally happen. We don't think that um, this makes sense either, you know, just intuitively, and it certainly doesn't make sense within the context of the actual macro modeling that we did and published in that Levy report that you referred to. So there may be cases at the micro level, so at the individual level, where a worker goes to their employer and says, look, you're paying me, you know, seven fifty an hour. I can go get a job in the um, public service employment program that's going to pay fifteen and give me some benefits. If if you can't match that, you know, I'm going to quit. There are going to be some employers in the economy who will refuse to raise workers' wages. There will be, and those workers will now have access to a full time job at a living wage with some benefits. Okay, that's going to happen. But that's at the micro level. And what our report shows is that at the macro level, that is for the economy as a whole, what the job guarantee program does is put, let's say, 15 million people to work at 15 bucks an hour in these public service jobs that then create income for those workers, that then boost um, consumption spending. Those people become customers at all of these businesses in the private sector, which then increase their sales and their revenues and their profits. And 
So as, as demand increases at the macro level, firms end up hiring more workers than they would have in the absence of the program, not losing workers. So our report shows that if you do a program like this and put 15 million or so people to work in the public sector job program, that the private sector ends up adding as many as 4.2 million new jobs Mm. above and beyond what they would have had, what they would have added if the program didn't exist, if the job guarantee didn't exist. So, you know, it's just not, uh, it's not correct, it's not credible to say that the job guarantee is a threat to the private sector. In fact, what it does is crowd in all kinds of new private sector jobs. You you asked about inflation. And again, it becomes something where I think our critics have just been, um, you know, to put it crudely, I think they've been sloppy. They're just simply saying, if you raise wages, it will be inflationary. They just assert this without any evidence at all, right? They just say, oh, it's going to cause all kinds of inflation. And that becomes one way that they try to discredit or undermine the proposal. And again, I go back to our report and I say, look, if you want to claim that the program is going to be inflationary, you have to do the hard work to demonstrate that. We did the hard work. So we ran the models. And what the models show is that you get essentially a one-time adjustment. It does, um, you know, cause the labor market to adjust. So in the first two to three years, you see some increase in wages across different sectors of the economy, but then you don't get a persistent inflationary effect. So in other words, you can introduce a federal job guarantee, you get a one-time adjustment in prices, but no persistent uh extra inflation as a result of the program. Professor Kelton, this is uh, Michael Palmieri. I I wanted to also follow up another point that's been brought up a lot was this question of the very idea of of what it does to a human being being um, either under or unemployed in terms of the social costs, the health costs. Um, There's been tons of work showing that being unemployed is probably one of the worst things for mental health that, that you could ever have. But it's strange. There's this day, a lot of people are questioning, kind of saying, why are we assuming that uh, jobs give people an identity and a sense of purpose? And if you could just, you know, answer that question, I mean, it seems like a very basic one to answer, but nonetheless, it's a point that keeps getting brought up. Can you just talk about the importance of work to millions of Americans? Look, what the problem that the federal job guarantee tries to solve is one of involuntary unemployment. In other words, the the people who the program is aimed at assisting are people who want to work but can't find it. So you've already kind of passed the hurdle in the sense that these are all people who are currently looking for work. They want to work. And the question, you know, why do they want to work? Um, is it about, you know, a sense of um, contributing? Is it about a, uh, that there's some belief that work is uh, something that you're supposed to do? It gives you a sense of purpose. There's dignity in getting up in the morning and knowing that you have a job to go to and that you're, you know, a productive member of society. You're contributing in some way to your community and uh, whatever. I mean, for some people, I think there is a very serious sense in which being deprived of access to employment deprives you of a real sense of dignity. Like, you know, when you meet someone for the first time, one of the the first questions that is usually asked is, what do you do? 
right? Yeah. What do you do? And and most people want to have some kind of a response to that question, you know. Um, so there is a sense in which we ascribe value to um, the way that we spend our time throughout the day. You know, what do you do? I, I'm a you know computer programmer. I'm a teacher. I'm a doctor. Whatever. Um, and and so I think that people who are unemployed feel detached from society in a sense. They feel left out. They uh, and and it's reflected, as you said, in a sense of um, the depression, uh, anxiety. You know, it's not just about money. We we look at uh, Argentina, which introduced a form of a job guarantee uh, some number of years ago. They called it the Hefes program. And one of my co-authors on this report, Pavlina Chernova, went to Argentina. She talked with workers in the program. And one of the questions she asked them was, would you rather that we just sent you a check and you didn't have to participate in the program in order to get the income? You could, you could just have the check arrive and you didn't, you know, you didn't have to show up and, and do anything. Would you have preferred that? And overwhelmingly, they said, absolutely not. This is where we come and we get together and, you know, we interact and we do something productive in our communities and we feel a sense of purpose and, um, you know, that, that I think speaks to the, the question that you're raising. The federal government has invested a lot, like through HHS, through the Department of Labor, uh, through the Social Security Administration, in trying to figure out ways to help people in vulnerable groups transition back into employment. And there are some models that seem to work that have been been tried throughout the decades, but not all of them do. Like there was a, a recent bevy of, of transitional work programs specifically for ex-prisoners, none of which found really significant earnings or employment impacts. You got a subsidized job, you worked in that, then the subsidy went away and you stopped working. And I think the takeaway from that and the author's takeaway is not, we should not try to help these people get jobs like we should. And there are some techniques that are more promising than others. My takeaway is more like, it's really, really hard that like these people are not working for a reason. It's and that they're, they're, really deep barriers that are keeping them from working related to societal stigma and prejudice, denial of skills and the lack of opportunities to develop skills. And like, we should address those things, but designing the program is really, really tough. And it makes me concerned when a lot of the job guarantee discussion sort of hand waves away details about how to design the program and sort of assumes that that these people will get public jobs and, and we can figure out how to do that rapidly and easily. And specifically, the, the, the hand-waving takes place, I think, in the major proposals I've seen by sort of punting the decision to state and local governments, right? It's like people know that they can't actually write down in detail how you're going to create a programs that get useful work for a large but also very heterogeneous group of hard-to-employ people. So what they say is like, well, we're going to have state and local governments do it. But A, like state and local governments don't necessarily know how to solve unsolvable problems. And also like the reality is like 
imagine to yourself, not like what you well-meaning liberal think a jobs guarantee program should be, but imagine what the governor of Mississippi is going to do with like a jobs guarantee slush fund, right? And like how, how much dignity is there going to be in the, in the work that's created there, right? Now, sometimes like it's the best you can do. Like there's, there's a reason we have a lot of state federal partnership programs in, in the United States, but you know, Again, like that is an implementation detail, right? If you're saying the way I'm going to work out these details is by not working them out and just sort of outsourcing the thinking to local elected officials, like you're going to get what you get. One thing I think through there and just like stepping back from this, I feel like jobs guarantee sounds very exciting and big and like this huge program that I I think does appeal to that kind of polling. But, you know, at the same time, I wonder, like you were talking about Fed policy, Matt, about other roads to accomplishing similar things that might work a little better, but just like sound a lot less like sexy policy wise. Like I always think of the difference between like all payer rate setting, which sounds very boring and single payer universal healthcare, which sounds like big and exciting and disruptive. And like the parallel I see here is you have jobs guarantee or you have something like a massive expansion of the earned income tax credit. So I could think through like, um, one area that comes up in a lot of these jobs guarantee discussions is childcare. That's an area where it seems like we need more workers. There's a lack of affordable childcare. What if we got more people working in that space? Now, one thing you could do is open a bunch of subsidized childcare centers. You could open a bunch of government childcare centers, but I don't know if people want to send their children to like childcare center of last resort, like knowing that this person has a guaranteed job of some level. And I think, Dylan, you've cited some research that suggests that people who are put into like a guaranteed government job have trouble transitioning in the private market. But you could also see with... Um, it's a child care center that's also a job of last resort for ex-cons. <laughs> exactly. I don't know if that's really where. Like, like when I think I've been touring yeah. child care facilities lately and I don't think I would go to that one. And I mean, like even beyond that issue, you could see if you're going to have these wage guarantees and benefit guarantees that actually doing the opposite of, you know, raising the price of child care as the private centers have to compete the flip side that seems like, and like you guys can tell you something I'm missing here, but an easier way to get to that is just some kind of like Ro Khanna's proposal to expand the earned income tax credit that is going to give a greater incentive for someone to think about doing some kind of work, maybe childcare, because they're going to get a much bigger tax credit back. So, I mean, earned income tax credit is not a job guarantee, but it feels like it pushes in a very similar direction without, and in a kind of known direction that we have a lot of research. We've been doing the earned income tax credit for a while in a way that a job guarantee wouldn't necessarily move us. Right. So I think you're hitting on something really important, which is that a job guarantee is, is appealing both because it employs all these people and because it sets up new services that people want and new government actions that people want. They're like, in addition to wanting everyone to have a job, most of these advocates think we should have universal childcare. They think we should have like a, a new green economy based on renewable fuels. They think we should have more transit and, and more trains. So it's natural to think we have this new pool of workers and we have all this stuff that we want to do. So let's just get the workers to do the stuff. But a lot of these are actually like really hard skilled professions. Like childcare is, is a skilled job that like in other countries like France, you need to go to, to education school to learn early childhood education to do that kind of teaching and, and supervision. And like maybe we don't need something quite like that, but you do want some training 
it's really appealing to think, well, we have all these millions of workers, and so we're going to fuel the whole country based on solar panels. But like, if I took an employer of last resort job in the like green core and someone was like, all right, Dylan, first day, you should like put some solar panels on some houses. I would like break a lot of solar panels. <laughs> um, and, and like, yeah. So there's a tension between wanting quality services based on skilled labor that creates like durable programs that are high quality and wanting to employ everyone. UBI has been around forever um, as a concept, and uh, and we had federally mandated jobs in the uh, in the Great Depression. Uh, why do you think they're sort of having a moment now? Why are they sort of resurging in the in the political conversation? Definitely, you know, given the current political climate, I don't think that anyone is expecting that we would have a basic income or a jobs program tomorrow. However, as Roosevelt has consistently argued, there is a lot of room for us to grow in our economy. And as a result, a lot of room to think bigger about our social safety net. And the election, I think, was a real wake-up call for a lot of people that we need bolder solutions to our economic problems. You know, there's a lot of money floating around in the system. And again, as, as we are talking and the tax debate is happening, the lens of our policies at the moment are focused towards the rich, you know, they're focused towards the top. And what I love about both a universal basic income as well as a jobs guarantee is that they shift that lens back towards everyday people like you and me, um, towards the middle income, the lower income distribution. And so more and more progressives, but also people beyond the progressive movement are starting to realize that we need to do this lens shifting. And I think that's really the reason that a universal basic income and jobs guarantees are starting to come back into the conversation and the policy discussion. Okay. And of course, you know, policy is one thing and implementation is another. Which of the two do you think has the toughest road ahead? And what are some of the roadblocks you foresee for, for either one of these as they, as they become a reality? One thing that I would like to address is that, you know, in these conversations about a basic income and a jobs guarantee, a lot of advocates on both sides talk about these as though they're opposing policies. But in, in reality, I think it's really important for us as progressives to recognize that these are deeply complementary policies that build on each other. Mm-hmm. And, and recognizing that is the first step in, in getting these programs to have legitimacy and be really truly considered as policy options. So in some ways, a job guarantee would address some of the institutional issues that a basic income just by nature of the policy itself can't address. Um, So depending on how it's set up, a federal jobs guarantee could make sure that workers and particularly vulnerable sectors, such as the care economy, as I mentioned, um, are protected and compensated and, you know, start to put power back into the hands of workers because folks would have the opportunity to leave a bad job because they know they have um, a federal job waiting for them or a public job waiting for them. And at the end of the day, that knowledge that you can have economic security allows 
you to invest in your community, your society, and your family. And that is the, that's the starting point for really rewriting the rules of the economy, as we say at Roosevelt, um, so that the economy works for all of us. And so the federal jobs guarantee is a piece of that institutional change that needs to happen so that the economy is rigged in favor of everyday people like you and me. Um, and in terms of a UBI, you know, a UBI dollar or a universal basic income dollar, each dollar goes further in an economy that's set up in our favor rather than the favor of corporations and the people at the top. So these are really policies that go hand in hand. And until we as a movement, I think, recognize that, um, it's going to be hard to really get traction on, on any one of them. We've just heard clips today starting with Upstream laying out multiple visions of a universal basic income and the vast differences between the progressive and conservative versions of the idea. Jacobin Radio made the argument that in our current political climate, it's more realistic to assume that if a UBI were to be passed, it's much more likely it would be created as the right-wing libertarian version that may end up being worse than the status quo. The Other Washington discussed the immense difficulty there would be for those set on dismantling current social aid programs. Jacobin Radio secondarily argues that a basic income scheme simply isn't transformative enough and only works to further entrench the neoliberal market system that we should be trying to subvert. And then Upstream discussed a strategy for making a universal basic income a transformative tool by reframing it away from any sense of welfare and beginning to think of it as more of a path to a new kind of freedom. We then transition to the idea of a guaranteed jobs program with the Next System Project discussing why they think a jobs program is better than a basic income, largely based on the value people put on doing work. The Weeds from Vox then questioned that notion by pointing out the nearly inevitable class divide that would be represented by federally guaranteed jobs, and more importantly, the stigma that would almost certainly be attached to them, similar to the stigma attached to SNAP benefit cards. Then, left out from Democracy at Work followed up with additional economic benefits of a jobs guarantee, and in many ways counterpointed on the topic of the mental benefits of work, regardless of what the job is. And the weeds then pivoted and focused on some of the potential shortcomings of a jobs guarantee that would show themselves during the implementation process, especially when being implemented by local governments that are ideologically opposed to helping people and love to try to modify behavior through shaming and scorn. And finally, we just heard a short comment on the other Washington about how these are not necessarily opposing policies and that we would likely begin to make more progress if we saw them as complementary to each other. A position I hold. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. I have even more thoughts to share on this topic, but first, let's hear from Alan. Hey, Jay, it's Alan from Connecticut calling, listening to some of the comments from people calling in talking about we on the left or those on the right. Uh, the conservatives, the liberals. And I just start to feel like we're trying to put everything into a box. 
And when we talk about race and gender and, and other aspects of, of human beings, we talk about intersectionality. And I think people need to take a look at, uh, we don't want to be in a box of liberals or Democrats or leftists. We want to stand for what we stand for. You know, not all liberals believe the same thing and not all left people believe the same thing. So, you know, those terms are kind of an average. And when we're trying to make a connection with people um, who might be a Trump supporter or something like that, we need to find the common ground. Um, so I think we need to look a little bit more of how those specific pieces intersect and how we can have meaningful conversations around that. I think this is part of the problem with the political system and the, the voting. Everyone wants to check a box voting for the Democratic candidate. I'm voting for the Green Party candidate. But again, we're voting for individuals. We're not voting for parties. We need to know what we're our own thoughts on political intersectionality is with the candidate that we want to best elect. And, and I don't know a good way to, to do that. I think the party system is strongly flawed, but I'm not sure that I have a smarts to make a solution to that. My only suggestion would be to make a list of those major issues that concern you and then check off the boxes for the candidates that meet those particular pieces. And whoever gets the most check boxes would get my vote. But uh, that's also a lot of work, and I'm afraid that most people won't do that. Anyway, those are my thoughts. Thank you. Stay awesome. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped get their clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now to cap off today's episode, a few more thoughts on today's topic. As I was doing all of the listening research for today's show, I, w- I kept being reminded of these somewhat parallel political debates that I've been at least witness to over the past 10 years or so. So regarding universal basic income, one of the main arguments we heard warning against the universal basic income today was the potential for it to be implemented incorrectly or too conservatively, depending on how you look at it. And I've dealt with this in the past regarding uh, cap and dividend. I had a, a listener write in and say cap and dividend isn't a good way to fight climate change because we tried that in British Columbia and it didn't work out well. But that was a perfect example of a policy being implemented incorrectly. And so I said, look, it was implemented wrong. That's not an argument against the policy. That's an argument against doing it wrong. That's not that confusing. But that listener also sort of argued that political realities, uh, political party ideologies being what they are, might it be inevitable for policies like that to be implemented incorrectly? Is that something to be concerned about? He was pointing out it definitely is something to be concerned about and was asking, how do we get around that? And now when it comes to universal basic income, that's a really interesting question. I think more interesting uh, on this topic than with cap and dividend. So the argument made today is that with political realities being what they are right now, how likely is it that we're going to get the super progressive version of that policy passed? That's something I think 
we should be very, very seriously concerned about. Now that sort of transitions to the other parallel debate that I have witnessed in the last 10 years. I mean, pretty much all of us have witnessed it. And that's going back to Obamacare. And it sort of dovetails because they they talk about would the universal basic income just work to further entrench the status quo or could it be used as a tool to you know move us to a, a brand new paradigm? And this is kind of the the disappointment that a lot of people had with Obamacare back in the day is that you know we we elected this black young savvy president who the conservatives were all calling a socialist. And he gave us the most market-based neoliberal healthcare reform we could come up with. And, you know, a lot of us wanted single payer back then or some version of it. And instead, we unfortunately, you know, maybe continued to entrench the existing system, actually somehow worked to empower the healthcare companies by funneling government money into them. And so that's the concern. But the flip side is we think now with the benefit of hindsight that Obamacare has worked to change the perception. And so it's actually uh, helped move opinion polls in the direction of universal coverage because it changed the way people think about government having a role in healthcare. So would a universal basic income, maybe if it was implemented poorly in in the worst neoliberal, let's keep people barely out of poverty just so corporations can pay them less version, say that's the, the version we got, would that be enough to change perceptions about whether the government should be doing something like this and then make people recognize, oh, this is a this is a good idea done badly and we should fix it because that's basically where we are right now with Obamacare. It's a good idea for the government to be involved and play a role in healthcare. This is done badly and we need to fix it. So now regarding uh, changing our social paradigms and how we look at things, that brings me to my last point, which is stigma. I think regarding Guaranteed jobs program in particular, we really, really must not underestimate the impact of stigma. And this is sort of the counterpoint to universal basic income that one of the best ways to avoid stigma is to make a policy universal. No one should be stigmatized for taking money that literally everyone gets in a universal program. But in a federally guaranteed jobs program, not everyone's going to be taking those jobs, and it creates the sort of divide-and-conquer type scenario that threatens all programs like this. So stigma is never part of the policy proposal. It never shows up on any of the budget write-ups, and so for those reasons and probably lots more, it doesn't get talked about enough. But stigma shows up inevitably, sometimes because people just feel it inherently, sometimes because bad actors stoke it on purpose because they are ideologically opposed to whatever it is they are trying to stigmatize. So, you know, it creates negative feelings in so many people. Often the people who use the programs feel the stigma internally and they feel bad about using the programs. It 
creates bad feelings in lots of people who don't use the program and then use those programs to look down on the people who do use them. And pretty much the only people who feel good are like good-hearted, well-meaning progressives who probably don't have to use the program themselves, but they're really glad it exists because they want to help people and they just wish the stigma would go away. But there's no real policy proposal or philosophical discussion happening about how to make the stigma go, go away until you start talking about universal programs. So, you know, stigma is the major factor, I think, that allows for, as I said, the divide and conquer strategy that people use when they don't like a program. They start talking about the makers and the takers and drive that wedge to create the political will to start dismantling those programs. And then secondarily, there's stigma's eviler twin, racism, which works to prevent uh, targeted programs from working well by racializing the stigma. You know, many say that's why Scandinavia can have nice things like social programs and we can't. It's a lot easier to say yes to a social program that benefits the poor when those poor people look the same as you do. Now, I mean, the trick in America is that there are plenty of poor white people, uh, but rich white people don't know that. So they think that it's just the the lazy, undeserving blacks who are signing up for these programs, and they think we shouldn't have a program like that then. Uh, those people are undeserving and lazy uh, for reasons that they don't fully even understand themselves, and they would never say it's about racism, but it definitely is. And so then they end up voting politicians who want to dismantle those programs and end up hurting mostly white people in the end, but that's how racism works. It hurts everyone. So when we talk about either the benefits of a universal basic income or the jobs program or the deficits of either, what I think deserves an enormous amount of focus is to ask whether or not a program is universal and to actually analyze what the answer to that question means, that if a program is universal, I think it's the surest way to, first of all, make it last, you know, make it bulletproof against arguments that depend on the divide and conquer strategy. And, and I think that universal programs can go the farthest toward changing the way people think about either the economy or the government or the government's association with the economy and and how it all works together. So I think that a guaranteed jobs program could be very good for lots of reasons we heard today, but it has maybe a lot of Achilles heels regarding implementation, but it's non-universality that it is going to be very much in the crosshairs of a lot of people who don't want to help anyone and will go to the tried and true uh, systems of stigma and shame to get people to not take those jobs or not want those jobs or to take the jobs but feel really bad about themselves at the same time. Whereas universal basic income has, you know, benefits and drawbacks as we heard today, but its biggest positive the way I can see it is that it is universal. If there are benefits to be had from a system like that, they might be bulletproof because at least no one would be talking about the makers and the takers. 
So if you have thoughts on any of this or anything else, I'd love to hear them. The number to dial 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and helping share all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.